Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at tmobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Hey there, Maya Lau here. Thanks for tuning into Other People's Pockets. Don't forget, we'd love to hear from you at otherpeoplespockets at gmail.com about your thoughts on the show, suggestions, or anything else. And please subscribe or follow this podcast on whichever podcast app you use and give us a rating and a review and tell a friend about it. Word of mouth really gives us a boost. Therapy is very effective, right? Especially if you have a therapist that is like cares about you and knows what they're doing and whatnot. Sometimes you just need a bill paid. And I'm a really terrible healer um, mm-hmm. and community worker if I'm telling you to like breathe and meditate and journal and you're hungry. Like it's just... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> My guest, Ismatu Gwendolyn, is a mental health professional and a life coach who's trying to rewrite some of the rules around how we care for those in need physically and emotionally. Ismatu has personally navigated the world of sex work in order to afford life and graduate school, and they discovered that as a stripper, talking to men in the club was not so different than counseling a client as a therapist. Ismatu also shares their thoughts on everything from abolitionism to mutual aid on their widely followed TikTok at ismatu.gwendolyn. I found it so intriguing what they said about the exchange of beauty for capital and how sometimes you can make more money the more you sit down and the less hard you work. I'm Maya Lau and this is Other People's Pockets, the show where I ask people how much they make and how their finances work so the questions we all have about money can be a little bit less of a mystery. Where am I reaching you today? I am on Lenape Land, so I'm coming in from modern-day Brooklyn, New York. Um, and it's thunderstorming where I am, so that's fun. Nice. I love days like that. I don't know if, if everyone does, but... <laughs> I certainly do. Yeah. Absolutely, I do. <laughs> what's important to you to identify yourself? Like, whether it's what you do or what's important to you, what you're passionate about. Oh. Tell me a little bit about you. The, the most important things about me to me is, is how fast can I sit down? Like I, I structure my whole life around how quickly 
can I be completed with my work in a way that makes me feel nice and in a way where I can sit down and eat great food with people I love. I learned, I think by finishing up college, that the prize for hard work is more hard work. Um, and that is so tragic. Uh, I had spent all of, you no, know, yeah, I had spent yeah. all, like, my whole childhood working really, really hard so I could get to college and go without debt. And I spent all of college working really, really hard so that I could go to professional school, uh, a professional school of my choice. And then by the time I had finished up with college and started professional school, in which I was once again working really, really hard to do what? Get a job so that I could, I was like, oh, oh no. (laughs) And then transitioning into the club as a stripper, you make more money the less hard you work. The more you sit down, like the, it just, yeah. So I I think at that point in time, when I was looking at the, the structure of social work and clinical social work and how hard you have to work for like crumbs versus the structure of being in the club, which is the one that everyone told me was exploited. However, I was being handsomely paid for very, very little time and very little hard work. I was like, oh, we, we, need, to, we need to redo some things. So you're a therapist slash life coach, also a stripper, also many things. What has been your journey to get here? <laughs> um, I had desires to go to medical school, and I still have desires to go to medical school. But I did not have desires to be wealthy off of making other people healthy. I think that healthcare is a human right. Um, and I think that anytime you begin to attach capital to somebody's rights, it can get a little, you, you start to have to negotiate some ethics. My real critical thinking about what it is that I wanted to do with my life and how it is I wanted to engage in the healing profession started in my undergraduate career. I began to realize how difficult it is to still be part of the communities that you came from while also being siloed away from them in elite education, surrounded by people that likely did not come from poverty or systemic hardship or like um, being from a country that is colonized and exploited. And that was really like illuminated for me when I went back to Sierra Leone to do research. Because, you know, um, to go to medical school in the United States, you need to have a whole bunch of things, but one of them is extensive research. And I don't like mice. I don't like pipettes. I don't like basements. So I, I went in the social sciences. You went back to Sierra Leone? Were you yeah. born there? No, I was not. I was I was born in the States. We're here because of uh, the Civil War. If there was not uh, a war in our country, I would likely would have grown up there quite happily. I did a two-year research study on the cultural effects of Ebola in Sierra Leone like on collective and cultural memory and grief. How does a people process a great tragedy when a great tragedy has happened to a body of people and not just one particular body or one particular family and community? So I structured my academic career around Sierra Leone so that I could go essentially for free. Not even for free. They paid me to go. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. I I went there. I first talked to healthcare professionals that were active during the Ebola crisis, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, et cetera about what they experienced and and what they learned. And then the second year I was talking to Ebola survivors themselves. And that was the year that fundamentally pivoted everything that I thought I wanted to be. When doctors and nurses and other people that were engaged in the healthcare profession talked about the Ebola crisis, they did so very much removed from their bodies because that's what's required of the occupation you have to. Like I talked to nurses that contracted Ebola in the process of caring for Um, people that were sick Mm -hmm. and also many sorts of care workers, wives, mothers that contracted the virus from caring for one another. It was a virus of intimacy. You you usually got it from Mm -hmm. a family member that 
either could not afford or was scared to go to the hospital. It struck me how small the population of healthcare professionals were that knew what it was like to be on the other side of that stigma. Because Ebola survivors, the reason they organized is because they faced really heavy stigma coming back into their communities. Because the general response was, I don't remember it. I don't have a desire to grieve. I don't have a desire to think about what happened with Ebola ever again. So when you have someone standing in front of you that is someone that reminds you of the great tragedy, right? Like we lost around 27,000 people for a country of 7 million. That's a huge, huge mm-hmm. toll. It, it taught me a couple things. One, the United States healthcare system is going to teach me about how to care for the body, but they will not necessarily teach me how to care for somebody's psychological state and landscape. Um, they will not necessarily teach me how to approach people as products of their environments and their communities. So I need a strong understanding of people's inside selves, right? Like the community that you have um, on your own person. And I need a strong understanding of systems and what people have to wade through in order to get care. Because there's a huge difference between your doctor prescribing you care and you having access to that care. Mm -hmm. And I need to be able to see people as people and not like constellation of symptoms. So I said, okay, Mm -hmm. I, this, this like, nose to the grindstone, go as fast as possible, you know, get through undergrads, you can get through medical school, so you can get through residency um, so that you can do more hard work. I got to stop. I have to, I got to pivot. I need to make sure to train really, really well in mental health. So that's why I decided to go um, become a clinical social worker. Most therapists, you know, that people think of, like, they're licensed by the state. There's some registry that you could probably look up their name in, and there's accountability, oversight, whatever. Why did you decide to not be licensed? You know, I had my qualms because I had been pretty thoroughly radicalized in my undergraduate career towards abolition, meaning that all systems of policing, right? So the the traditional police, you know, people with badges and guns um, and traditional prisons, prisons, courthouses, jails, all that kind of stuff. But then policing is is bigger than that, right? Policing is about policy. It's about the ability to tell bodies of people what is the correct way to live and what is an incorrect way to live. The incorrect way is punishable by force, um, by jail time, by fines, by death, et cetera. So, Abolition is a political framework that rooted really well within me in my undergraduate career. I had a lot of radical professors. So I was already like, I am uncertain of what it would look like for me to reconcile this politic while also being held accountable by this state that I don't necessarily believe is good or legitimate. Then I became a stripper to survive the economic weight of grad school. Because graduate school, particularly in the United States, but across the Western world, is geared towards people that have some infrastructure. I had no infrastructure. <laughs> like, I, I moved out of my parents' house at 17 to go to college, and that was because I couldn't afford to continue to be there. Um, we, were, we were, like, constantly on economic crisis. I never felt like a burden. They never, ever made me feel like a mouth to feed or someone like I, it wasn't that I felt unwelcome. It was that I was the only working adult in my household when I was 16 and I was not even an adult. So I needed a way to be able to get a significant amount of money in a very short amount of time, because in addition to the the coursework of graduate school, you also have 
field hours, clinical hours, which is a system in which you pay to work or you indebt yourself to work. It's quite literally does. It's it's oh so gosh. bad. Yes, it's so bad. <laughs> so I had to account for coursework plus around 20 hours of work that I had to conduct for free, which means that I needed to be able to make like rent and food money and also money to like mm-hmm. survive past that in, I don't know, like two to three nights of work. Yeah. What yeah. exactly? Like, <laughs> what other yeah. job is there? So I did many, many months of research. Like there's a lot of internet archives that are, are really helpful to people that are thinking about it or starting out. I paid strippers to talk to me, to tell me what their experiences were and what I should expect. I got really lucky and like commented on somebody's YouTube video that was like literally taking girls out and would like help you get your footing for like a small percentage of whatever you made that night. And she was really nice. She didn't even charge me like that. Like it was, I, I, I the, a series of, fortunate events mm-hmm. happened to be able to kind of slide me into the work. And then you just kind of have to jump in with both feet. And I was so surprised. I didn't realize the extent of how much I was putting on a political identity and becoming a sex worker. But you are then like marked undesirable. It is difficult to do your taxes. It's difficult to qualify for apartments. It's difficult to do anything when your um, living is in cash. Like you're clearly somebody whose intellect is important to you. And I know that like for me, like I've struggled a lot with, um, especially when I was younger, like I only want to be known for my brain. Like I don't (laughs) want any, you know, but at the same time, like we live in bodies and whatever. Like, did you feel like uh, it's weird to be like visually consumed in this way, but like, I also like this other part of me is really important. Or did you like that there's the fullness of that? I don't think I contended with it much because this was not actually my first <laughs> gambit for with beauty for capital. So before I was a stripper, I was a child model. So okay. I had already been in situations where I was being paid handsomely yeah. for short amounts of time because it was pretty. So to your original question, like what compelled you to put that down? A lot of it was being in sex work. And seeing how closely it mimicked my job as a therapist. Like in my second year of graduate school, I was a therapist. I had a client caseload. I saw people one-on-one. Like I had a supervisor, but it's not as if that person was in session with me. Yeah. Yeah. I was seeing anywhere between 10 and 15 clients a week. So that's hours, like, like 10 to 15 hours plus the hours it takes to do notes and any research that I might need to do to be able to support that person well. I would clock out of that job. I would put on my face and my hair and my nails and my whatnot. I would go clock in at the club and then I would do the same thing again. Clubs that tend to cater towards like white business executives, those people come to the mm-hmm. club for therapists. They come for care work. They come for um, the cosplay of to emotional talk. intimacy. Yes, they, they come to talk. Mm-hmm. It was um, interesting seeing how easier it was to get people to open up in a club setting because there was actually the guarantee of confidentiality. You don't know me, I don't know you. We don't even know each other's real names. Like, who am I going to tell? Yeah. You know? So seeing how many accountants, like, that that lived otherwise, like, really straightforward lives were questioning Mm -hmm. their gender, were closeted trans Mm -hmm. women, because sex work in and of itself is already deviant, like, you can, like, open Mm -hmm. up to that person a little bit more who's less likely to judge you when you say, like, I kind of want to wear makeup and pantyhose and I get sexual pleasure from that. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. 
This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for business, for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hey, guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich. Here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck... You buy Toyota Dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. These are people that are, like, paying to get you in a private room to talk? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How much, just curious, would that be... Versus if they wanted to go to therapy. Let's see. Um, if you're paying out of pocket for the previous private practice that I did my second year clinical studies at, I believe it was like 136 for a 50 minute session, 55 minutes. And an hour at the club was 900, not including tip. Wow. So they are paying a lot for talking. I mean, a lot is relative. These men are obscenely wealthy. Yeah. Like, it's not a problem for them. Right. But they could, like, they could spend, like, say, $200 an hour. And- well, sure, but now you're talking to someone who's a mandated reporter, right? So this is right. the thing. Okay. A surgeon is not going to tell their therapist that they have a drinking problem because you run the risk of being reported. Um, uh, you know, someone is not going to talk about the things that that shame them the most if they know that there's something that could get reported about that. This is one of the big reasons that I decided not to take licensure because like I can't actually guarantee you confidentiality. I can unless you talk to me about suicide ideation or you talk to me about family systems that might be abusive where there are children involved or even sex work gets reported quite a bit. Um, and sex work and social work have a really contentious relationship in the first place because one of the original goals of social work in the United States was to eradicate sex work essentially by any means necessary. So being a mandated reporter, can you explain what that is and what are all the things that in traditional therapy, if you're licensed, you would have to tell someone else if your client told you? Yeah, so if you have intent to harm yourself or others, that particularly gets real sticky around suicide ideation, which is hard being someone who needs to ask for help 
but doesn't want to, mm-hmm. to put down any flags such that they might be institutionalized. Your therapist does have some judicial powers to be able to involuntarily hospitalize you. There are like a couple things that you have to go through. It's not just that they could like call the police to your house who are going to kidnap you from your home. However, that's not impossible. And then the idea of harm and what is harm, what is intent to harm, what is plans for harm, those aren't hard and fast rules. It can be like, that's kind of up to the person that you're talking to. So I've had a lovely therapist who promised to never report me no matter what I said. And that was really helpful, but I do have to trust that they'll keep that Mm -hmm. promise. And I didn't like that dynamic. I didn't like the idea Mm -hmm. that like, I'm just supposed to trust that this is never going to happen. I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. have that fear. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's a difficult water to wade through. And I do believe that you have to have good ghosts in the machine that are able to pass people through because the systems that we have in place are not avoidable by everyone. I also think that at the same time, you need people outside the system being able to build separate systems and structures that are amenable to people that are scared of the state for whatever reason, whether you're undocumented, uh, whether you don't pay taxes for whatever reason. I met so many people that were gang affiliated or drug runners or what have you that really would have benefited from therapy, but they will never ever talk to somebody that is registered with the state. Like, especially in the Black community, in the Black poor community, we don't have a great relationship with social workers. Those people do tend to use their power to knock around our families or our kids are often used as bargaining chips for sobriety or drug testing or what have, like it's just like it gets real sticky for a lot of us so I wanted to be uh, a resource to people that otherwise were really wary of our traditional systems tell me more about the child modeling and how that played into your childhood I grew up uh, in Colorado I was in the Rockies. And then in my like teenage years, my time was split pretty evenly between Colorado and Arizona. So on one end of the Rockies to the other um, to visit both of my parents. I had somewhat of an untraditional experience being the only Black person around outside of my family and my small West African community. So your parents, your, your parents fled the Civil War in Sierra Leone. And why did they end up in Colorado specifically? My family comes from, at least my father's side, is indigenous to the mountains of Sierra Leone. So I think it was just like a, an easy and familiar landscape. And it was cheap because um, gentrification in the city happens um, in primarily black and brown areas. Gentrification in the, the rural happenings happens when you live in a rural place and it's cheap. And then suburbia stretches out towards you and makes everything expensive. But at the time that I lived there, it was a pretty rural area. So it wasn't just that we were the only, like... Black people, it was an exclusively white area. So aside from me and my extended family, all of my classmates were white. The people I saw at church were white. The people that were in the grocery store, everyone around me was white. And then my family was all Sierra Leonean. Because of this, I never had hangups or qualms about how physically beautiful I was. Constant praise, right, from our from our friends and family, like your daughters are so beautiful. And then constant praise from strangers, which was uncomfortable, but it, it solidified in me that I was like some sort of structural kind of beauty, that it wasn't negotiable. My mom had to coach me to not say I know when people said, you're so pretty. Because <laughs> I, I, then I had heard it so many times that I just felt like they were stating a statement of fact rather than trying to give me a compliment. 
So yeah, yeah. When we moved to Arizona, there were a couple um, small businesses that made hats, dresses, scarves, like kind of like more luxury items um, that asked us to model for them in their fashion shows, in their locally owned fashion shows. So that's how we started. Myself and my sister, I was 12, she was 14. I think it was a couple hundred dollars a show, or I could take less money and have Mm -hmm. some clothes. So either way, it was like a Mm win-win situation, right? And once it started to expand like that, me and my sister were looking at each other like, this feels dangerous. It's, It's intense to have a relationship with your body where you appraise yourself, where you think about how much your like particular look can go for in different um, aspects of life. So while I had what was sort of a unilaterally positive understanding of the way that I looked, like I never had self-esteem issues. I was never um, worried about my my skin color or my features or what have like I like I had internalized right that there was some sort of like objective fact that I was really pretty and that it could mm-hmm. get me things in this world and. I come from mm-hmm. like a mother who is also very pretty. She's very much a beauty queen. So she taught us a lot about beauty work. And in addition to being pretty, mm-hmm. being charming and having people skills and learning how to speak well, sales, essentially sales. Let me tell you, I almost did not graduate high school because of truancy. I had like 30, over 30 absences in one semester, my second year. Because of modeling? or no, because, of- because of poverty. Because, okay, yeah, because yeah. like we didn't have reliable transit. I was outside the busing system because I kept getting sick because of a myriad of things. It just got, it didn't go that well. I don't know that everyone would have just been willing to let me slide yeah. on that kind of stuff if yeah. I was not so pretty and charming. When you were a child model... Was that money going to your family? How was it being used and how was that talked about, if at all? Uh, we didn't talk about money as a family. So I know that I was making more than what I saw in my hand, but I still had some agency over like the money that I made. And I would voluntarily give money to my mother all the time because the light bill needed to be paid. I'm not blind. Like I see that we have no lights. I see that there is no food. I do generally think that I had like a lot more agency and choice over that than other children would have in my circumstance. Like she Mm -hmm. didn't want to make me or my sister feel like we had obligation. I think I just feel familial obligation because I I see very clearly our circumstances. Well, now it's your income. Well, it's changing. I have the traditional therapy model where I charge people directly, but I don't take insurance. I can't take insurance because insurance doesn't cover people that are not state board certified. Mm-hmm. And then there's also all this hairy stuff with insurance where I'm required to diagnose you. I'm required to take notes. Mm-hmm. Those notes can be subpoenaed if you ever go to court or stand trial. Mm-hmm. Um, people can try to request those notes and sometimes they can use police forces that I have to give them up. It gets hairy. So it's uh, $75 a session per person and I run group sessions. So mm-hmm. it works like um, I say, this is the suggested amount. However, any amount you can pay, I will take. I'm transitioning away from this because I'm finding that even the the need to state I can't pay is a barrier. Finding that people sooner like skip session or like try to rob Peter to pay Paul, me being Paul. Mm. I don't like that. So I want to make my services free and then move Alafia Coaching because that's my coaching business, Alafia to a nonprofit rather than a registered corporation. Like how much do you estimate maybe you will have brought in? Let's see, I got my paperwork right here. $5,000 a month. 5000 Pretty consistently. If I were to, okay. to stick doing this in the way that I'm doing it now, 
I would be getting around $5,000 a month, then plus an extra. Mm-hmm. So that's like 60K a yeah, year. Plus an extra 1200 from a month. Yeah, from Substack, from Patreon, from the paid tiers of, of me being on the internet. So, yeah, decent. So you want to make the whole model to where you, you're not having individual people pay for their individual therapy, but it's all your audience is helping to pay for you to just do all the work that you want to do. And then your clients are paying what they can. Clients would be paying what they can, but then it would be siloed to like, I, I want to run Alafi essentially entirely on mutual aid has therapy is mm-hmm. very effective, right? Especially if you have a therapist that is like cares about you and knows what they're doing and whatnot. Sometimes you just need a bill paid. Sometimes that's what it is. Sometimes the big stress in your life is that your car got repossessed or that you don't know how to mm-hmm. make rent or that you don't have money for food. And I'm a really terrible healer um, and community worker if I'm telling you to like breathe and meditate and journal and you're hungry. Like it's just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so to continue with the donation model, it would be such that I don't have to take any overhead. Um, traditional therapists can subsidize their costs because insurance pays it out so long as they have like proof that this person is sick enough to need care, but like getting better enough to to continue to justify the cost. Right. So replacing the insurance model with a group of people that might enjoy extra content from me anyways, because it's the incentive. I make extra content for like the paid tiers of of my my online presence. And then if people wish to continue to donate, I can direct that money towards some of our members that are having a hard time financially. We should have this conversation again in like six months. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'll have um, I'm down. a better understanding of how how it went, like trying to be public, essentially being publicly funded. You have this public Google Doc that's a spreadsheet mm-hmm. called Feed My Family. Can you describe what that is and what is the importance of that kind of financial transparency? Yeah. So Feed My Family is a fundraiser that I did on spite. (laughs) Uh, On spite and also out of need. So November and December of what was last year, 2022, this old adage that poor people should not reproduce was getting circulated on the internet. And that's a dog whistle politic that is designed to make poor people ashamed for being alive. It doesn't actually solve any problems, right? Because however you feel about personal responsibility and choice and yada, 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 it doesn't change that the poor of the world are not randomly occurring. They're Black, Brown, and Indigenous societies that have been systemically disenfranchised. And they also happen to be the people with the least amount of choice in terms of their reproductive decisions. And also, reproductive healthcare is healthcare. Yes. <laughs> like, it's just people need yeah. healthcare. It's not like you get this kind of healthcare, but not exactly. that kind of healthcare. And we often have a, a really small understanding of what that healthcare is, right? We tend to think of abortions. Yeah. We should also be thinking of how do we create safe and sustainable parenting conditions? Because that's also right. one of the tenets to reproductive justice. So my tribe was going through some difficulties in harvesting in the harvest season because we don't have any equipment. Everyone is harvesting by hand. This is the Limbaugh tribe of Sierra Leone. And I happen to be in a position um, in my tribe where I'm, very few Sierra Leoneans make it to the world stage, right? And that's where I am. Even though my stage is small, I might be like, you know, if this were a music festival, it'd be an opener at 10 a.m., like on a side stage somewhere, (laughs) right? I saw a need, right? The the poor of the world that you're talking about that are incessantly irresponsible by having children, that's my family you're talking about, and you have no idea what you're talking about. And I stand to be able to help them. So I ran a fundraiser, like, if y'all care so much about making sure these kids are fed, mm-hmm. feed them. 
I ran a campaign for a tractor. And what started as two combination rice harvesters have moved to establishing a transportation company in Sierra Leone such that we can move, first of all, move our, our agricultural products so that we have centralized and guaranteed service from the capital to the provinces because that doesn't currently exist. Um, and so that we have means of creating capital such that I don't have to run like some sort of yearly fundraiser and kind of depend on charity in that sense. So I still have it up on my link tree because it's important that people see what like decent money management looks like. And let me tell you, it killed me. Like that was so difficult because I was actually homeless at the time that I started the fundraiser. That's the only reason I had to include a stipend for me in the first place. Otherwise, I wouldn't have charged any overhead fees for running the thing. Like I just would have done it for free. But I couldn't start a new bank account because I was homeless and you need a you need an address to, uh, to, to begin a separate bank account. So the amount of like meticulousness on making sure every line item was budgeted, even like if you go look through, I had to go to Amsterdam to make sure that I was seeing the tractor and that we weren't getting scammed and to record it and to document it, to do all the paperwork and the wire transfers and whatnot. Like every piece of food that I bought in Amsterdam is like under that fundraiser because it's important um, when you're working with the people's money to be accountable to the people. Mm -hmm. Just straight up. find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moon roof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. So basically, it's a spreadsheet showing this. You donated this money. This is exactly everything. This is exactly it everything to. it went to. That's correct. 
So it's also Mm -hmm. a a means, like a a handbook, a guide to say like, it doesn't have to go like a slush fund, the same rich people get richer. It can also look like being transparent, like essentially like open source code, like similar to that. Yeah. Where um, I'm putting the manual on action. And that's like part of the the work, right? I mean, we know about so many supposedly good causes that, you know, oh, look, look at the work we're doing out here. But then it's like the money part is like, Ooh, that's a mystery. And it's like, that shouldn't should, be. That's, that's the last thing that should be a mystery. Right. Like, that, it's the last thing that should be a mystery. Yeah. What is sort of an amount that you feel comfortable with having for savings for you or having for you to pay off your debt? Like, where do you draw the line of what is excess and what is something that you need for your financial stability? This is a great question. Moving into adulthood, I've had these like childlike ideations of what it looks like to to have enough be blown out of the water. I need way more money than I thought that I did, right? Um, especially having parents that are moving towards retirement, that are aging, um, that whose only retirement plan is me. I, I have constituents that I, I wasn't expecting. Like I thought, you know, mm-hmm. it's not going to be expensive so long as I don't have kids. And then my mom had another stroke. I was like, oh, yeah. okay, oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> so I yeah. have begun to understand that um, a, I'm not motivated by money personally. Even when I was a stripper and I was making all that money, I didn't save any of it because I would just give it away. Like I would give indiscriminate handfuls of cash mm. to homeless people. I tipped $300 every time I went out to eat, which was multiple times a week. Like I just did not, I have no incentive for individual wealth. Mm-hmm. I am motivated by my community. So I need enough to be able to be a resource to my community. Mm -hmm. This means that I cannot overwork myself. I cannot constantly put myself in financial crisis, giving to other people. And I need to have enough such that I am stable, right? So stability Mm -hmm. includes a six-month savings fund, the ability to pay off my debt monthly and not go into any sort of bankruptcy and foreclosure. Stability includes knowing where my next and next and next meal is coming from and, and the ability to take care of my parents. Honestly, that's like a five-figure amount a month. Yeah. yeah, right. And like, how do you, what, what is that amount? What is that amount a month that you feel like you need for the, what you just said? I'm thinking it's somewhere around $15,000 a month. Wait, but you're making, but you're, you have to spend like $15,000 a month, but you're making 5000 a month. Yeah, this, is, from this your work. is one of the reasons that I'm changing my funding model. Because I am not motivated to charge people for services that I feel in my bones should be free. I'm not motivated by money at all. Like, I don't care. Um, Especially because I've been poor before. I've been homeless before. I've been, like, it didn't kill me. I find that I'm motivated by community. So that much in my life allows me to be a resource to my direct constituents, to the people that are depending on me to survive, myself, my cat, my parents. Cool. Past that, is what I would begin to call excess in that I don't really need this money to survive anymore. What do you personally indulge in financially, if anything? Food. Oh my gosh. All kinds of food. (laughs) Strippers have an enclave of Twitter. Um, Not just strippers, like sex workers of all kinds have an enclave of Twitter where we come and kiki, ain't on Twitter. And there was this tweet that lives in my head, rant-free, and it says every stripper that's not like a bags hoe or a shoes hoe has a $2,000 food budget a month. I I don't care about designer shit. I have, you can see my bags in the back. These are my two bags and I'm running them down. Like I don't, I don't care about clothes. I don't care yeah. about cars. I don't care about any of that shit. I want to eat good 
for every meal all the time. When I go out to eat, I misswipe the card. I don't care. I don't look at the menu. Yeah. I, I, all I want is to live a life where I don't have to look at the, the prices on the menu. And even then, like, I don't really care about like a $600 dinner because those places don't even tend to be, I want food food. Like I like soul food. That's I like good. African food. Yeah. I like, like, I like, yeah. I want to be able to eat to my heart's content food. And then like functions to be able to throw a function. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened to to party culture, particularly West African party culture, because we used to rent halls. Um, we used to have big pans of jollof rice. We used to have like it used to be like eat, drink, dance, and it was not no like cash bar. Like I don't I don't know what that mm-hmm. is. My family we still do it the traditional way. All the best parties I've ever been to were either thrown by my family or by millionaires in the club. Do you have a Do you have a meal you're looking forward to, or like something you're like, ooh, I really want to cook this right now or soon? My mom makes these fried lobster tails that I've been like, I wake up and I think about it. So I'm definitely going to have to make those sometime this week, which means that I have to. So in addition to food, you need time to be able to cook that food. Yeah. So time freedom is really important to me because I got to go to the fishmonger. Mm-hmm. I can't go to no Whole Foods to get like three day old lobster tails. You got to go to the fishmonger. Right. You got to be able to do that shit by yourself. So food and the, the time to just like soak and bask in it. Isma, too, thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been really fun. Thank you for having me. This was lovely. Thanks for listening to Other People's Pockets. If you like the show, please tell a friend and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Word of mouth and reviews are super helpful to us. Other People's Pockets is written and hosted by me, Maya Lau. It's produced by me, along with Joy Sanford and Dan Gallucci. Production help from Angela Vang. Our executive producers are me, along with Jane Marie and Dan Gallucci. A special thanks to West African Parties. Other People's Pockets is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Little Everywhere. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. You can sign up for Pushkin newsletters at pushkin.fm. Find me on Twitter at Maya Lau or on Instagram and TikTok at It's Maya Money. And we'd love to hear from you. This week, we want to know... Have you ever made your life smaller and found that you're happier? For instance, maybe you live in a smaller house now, so you feel less pressure to buy a bunch of furniture to fill up a big house. Or maybe you sold your car and now only go places you can walk or bike, and the savings and simplicity of that feels refreshing. Leave us a voicemail at 323-540-4255. That's 323-540-4255. Or record a voice memo and send it to otherpeoplespockets at gmail.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.